Good morning, everyone. It, I wrote another poem, and then it's called, it's called Forever Always Present. Then you shall, then you shall let your children know Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Always present, he was in the past, accomplishing his very will for his people, even in the present, calling us to cross over rivers too deep for us to pass, so we wait for his divine intervention. She's in a panic and feeling alone, ever since her father left her and her mother to fend for themselves on their own. All that she ever knew disappeared in one moment, like Kevin McAllister on Home Alone. She's treading water and it's getting deeper. She's praying to her Lord that some way, somehow, that he would keep her. So she holds on for one moment longer. The next sound that she hears alarms her. My dear daughter, reach out your hand and open your eyes. So she did, and to her surprise, it was her deliverer, the father that she always wanted that finally came home and breathed life into her. Months later, you could see that she was a new woman, making his name famous like Amos and Andy. Always present like he was in the past, accomplishing his very will for his very people in the present. Calling us to cross over rivers that are too deep for us to pass, so we wait for his divine intervention. He's contemplating suicide, and all he wants to do is get away. Reality has hit him, and he no longer can hide. For a long time, he has wanted to be a part of a tight-knit community. But living in a city, he only provides him anonymity. So one night, he decides that early the next morning, he would attempt to take his life when no one would be watching. The next morning, he found a bridge, and he stepped upon the ridge. And just before he, just before he inched toward the ledge, he prayed. Dear God, I really don't want to do this, but I'm tired of not being known, and I'm tired of not having my own home. I'm tired, Lord, and I just can't see a way. My mama used to say, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Well, the river is rising, and I can't swim, and I can't see. My sight is getting dim, so please, before I jump, show me that someone cares. I don't want to go back to a place of anonymity where impersonality is too much for me to bear. Just as he had one foot off the ledge, he heard a voice. My son, I love you. You are not alone. Remember, it is me that you will always find your home. And as for a community for you to call your own, keep your eye out. For in the near future, you will know what this is known about. Always present like he was in the past, accomplishing his very will for his very people in the present calling us to cross over rivers too deep for us to pass. So we wait for his divine intervention, where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, where his grace is sufficient and his strength is proficient, where his love is not just a theory waiting for substance, but he is our sustenance. Thank you. What's up, everybody? I have props. It's a Pampers box. 
plenty of pampers at our house. Um, well, my name's Ryan Stevens. I think I know many of you. If I don't know you, I would love to get to know you. So uh, please come find me after the service. I have two little kids, obviously. So I'll be uh, trying to wrangle some kids, I'm sure, but wrangle kids with me, right? We're family, that's what we do. So uh, I'm really excited this morning. I get to introduce a new sermon series. Uh, it's called The Golden Oldies. And when Greg and I had discussed this, I pitched this idea to him that I wanted to do this sermon series that would really um, kind of give you a few random snippets out of the Old Testament. Uh, see, I think sometimes we tend to, we, we tend to uh, draw a line in the sand between the Old Testament and the New Testament where somehow God changed, where somehow he became a different God. But the reality is that what the separation is, is everything changes for us between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We get Jesus, uh, so, so everything changes for us, but the God that we serve is actually the same God in the Old Testament that he is in the New Testament. And if we draw that line, if we make this distinction where there's old and there's new and God changed, then we're going to miss out on some things because we tend to focus all of our effort on the New Testament, thinking this is more relevant to me than the Old Testament is. But that, that couldn't be farther from the truth. So what we really want uh, the teaching team, Greg and Mike and I talked about it, and what we really want this sermon series to speak to is this reality that the God we serve today is no different than the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac or the God of Jacob. He is the same God, specifically that his character and his love for his people hasn't changed at all. So we're going to give the Old Testament a little bit of love over the next, I think, six? Six to eight weeks, yeah. Uh, so I won't lie to you all, this, this whole idea for the sermon series was kind of born out of a single uh, sermon, and this is it. So if you picked a, you picked a good week to come, at least I think so. <laughs> um, there's a couple things that you need to know before we go forward. Uh, so the first is, last December I had this dream, and I had just given my first message uh, about a month before in November. And Lance Howard had just preached in October about listening to your dreams out of the Hebrew series. I believe it was Hebrews 3 that he preached out of. So in this dream, uh, I was sitting in this warehouse with a concrete floor and metal walls and the beams overhead and everything, just your stereotypical warehouse. It was full of like, seemed like 100, maybe 1,000 uh, folding metal chairs and people sitting in them. We were listening to this worship band that was playing kind of on this little elevated platform. And... Uh, the, the worship was great. I remember I was sitting on the aisle, and I was excited about worship, and then Lance Howard actually walked out on stage to give a message. And uh, I didn't know Lance very well at the time, but I remember being pretty excited that he was the one delivering the message because uh, I, I just heard him speak on dreams, and so it was pretty cool. So Lance walks out, uh, and he starts preaching. He gets about 10 minutes into his sermon, and, and he stops. I don't remember what he was teaching on. He stops and he says, you know what, uh, I think Ryan just has something he needs to say. So, Ryan, why don't you come on up? So at this point, I'm sitting in my chair going, well, Lance has to know some other Ryans because there's no way he's talking about me, but he's star staring me down. So I walk up reluctantly. I get out of my seat. And I walk up to him, and uh, I, I got to the stage. I was terrified. I looked him in the eyes, and I was like, Lance, I... I have no idea what you want me to say. And he looked at me like almost puzzled, like, like I was stupid. He handed me the mic and he said, just say it. 
and then turned around and walked off stage. I'm like, that's helpful. So in the dream, I started preaching this sermon out of Joshua 3 and 4. This was a scripture that Nicole and I had clung to pretty tightly uh, through a trial we had just faced. When I woke up, I figured this dream had to have had some sort of significance. I told Nicole about it, and she gave me the, the wise advice to write the sermon down. What I had preached, write down my main points, write down what I had said, so I didn't forget. So I did that, and then I started studying. I went back, and I reread Joshua 3 and 4, and I talked with Greg about it, and I talked with Lance about it, a few other people. I prayed through it a lot. And really what uh, I feel like I heard was that God was telling me, Ryan, you've got to get this out that there are people that need to hear this sermon. So the sermon today is the sermon from my dream in December. It's all the same main points. It's the same thing. The second thing that you need to know, oh, and first, because of that, I really really feel like, uh, number one, this was really good for me to go back and restudy this, kind of relive some some of this um, trial that Nicole and I were in. But I also really firmly believe that God has been preparing this sermon for someone here. Maybe it's just one person. I don't know. I think he's been preparing it for them for months, if not years. And I think that uh, it's no coincidence that I had just preached my first message. I would just seen, okay, maybe I can do this. You guys be the judge. But maybe I can do this when he says, okay, now say this. So I'm really excited about it. So the second thing that you need to know before we go forward is that uh, this story, uh, this sermon is really kind of more a testimony than anything. Um, it's a story about a trial that Nicole and I went through. It's extremely personal. Um, it goes into some of the intimate details of Nicole and I's life. And prior to today, it's not something that we had shared in a public capacity. So this is pretty scary. Uh, this, is, this is our life. This is, this is us. So to stand up here, it feels a little bit vulnerable. Uh, feeling called to share it or being told to share it in the dream is a little different than like standing here and actually doing it. Um, but this is an emotional story for me, so you're going to have to bear with me as we go through this. Nicole and I talked about it, uh, and we decided that if this is something uh, that God wants us to say, that we'll be bold enough to say it, especially to, to our family here at CPN. Yeah. Whoa, Dave, I told you. That screw, man. It happened earlier. It happened earlier. I told him their screw was growing out. Of course, I stripped it out earlier, so you can find me. I pulled it up. So before we get too much into the personal story for today, I want to go through Joshua 3 and 4 for you. That's the text for today is Joshua 3 and 4. So if you guys want to open your Bibles to Joshua 3 and 4, that would be helpful. I'm not going to read it to you because it would be a little bit daunting and kind of monotonous. So instead, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it. I'm going to tell you the story, but what, what I would personally love is for uh, you guys to take some time this next week to read it for yourselves, uh, to study it yourselves. Maybe God shows you something that he didn't show me. I would love to learn from you all. So if he gives you a different interpretation or it speaks to you differently, please let me know. So a few weeks ago, uh, actually I was on the week of elder ordination, Greg introduced the character Joshua in the Bible. Now if you remember, Joshua was the son of Nun, who was the, the servant of Moses as the, after the Israelites had been liberated from Egypt. 
So when Moses died, Joshua was appointed the new leader of the Israelites, and specifically the leader that would deliver them, that would take them into the promised land. However, prior to entering the promised land, and really in the beginning of Joshua, there was one big, one remaining geographical obstacle. And that obstacle was that of the Jordan River, which just happened to be at flood stage at this time of year. So this clip, Nate, if you want to throw it up there, this is the Jordan River at flood stage. This is what they walked up to after wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Had to have been a little bit disheartening. So here's Josh, Joshua, just having been deemed like the new guy. And he steps up to this river with the Israelites. Now, at the beginning of Joshua 3, um, they leave Shedem, and they head for the Jordan. They stay there for three days in this camp that's near the Jordan. And then Joshua and some of the officers start getting the people ready to move. And they say, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, start moving. Keep your distance, but follow it. So the Israelites have been wandering around in the desert for quite a while, and they'd seen God do some pretty serious miracles. But now Moses, their fearless leader, was dead, and it was Josh's turn, or in reality, it was God's first turn through Joshua to actually prove that he was still in this, that he was still um, true to his promise. So I, had, I have to imagine there was kind of this awkward silence at this point, like they're standing on the riverbank, and they're like, okay, when you see the thing move, and everyone's like, move where? There's a river there. And I think Joshua addresses the awkward silence in uh, chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And then in verse 7 and 8, God speaks to Joshua and he says, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. So God tells Joshua, and then Joshua tells the people that when they do this, as soon as, as soon as their feet touch the water, that the upstream flow will stop, and it will pile up a great distance away, and that they'll be able to cross on dry ground. So the priests carry the ark down into the water, and sure enough, as soon as their feet touch the water's edge, the upstream flow stops, the river piles up, and the people are able to cross on dry ground. So then the whole nation of Israel crosses. The priests are still standing in the middle of the river, and God tells Joshua, he says, pick 12 men, one from each tribe of Israel, and tell them to go back to the center of the river, right where the priests are standing, and pick up a stone. So Joshua picks his 12 men, and they, carry, they go get the stones. And then after the whole nation has crossed and the stones have been gathered, God tells Joshua, to, okay, call the priests up. They can come out now. So Josh does this. Uh, he tells the priest to come out, and in chapter 4, verse 18, it says that no sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than the river started flowing again. So later on that night, the Israelites are camped in Gilgal, and Joshua takes these stones that were collected from the middle of the river, and he piles them up into a memorial. And then in chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, we finally get to see why. Joshua says to the Israelites, In the future... When your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. 
He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So in April 2012, Nicole and I kind of stepped up to our Jordan. We stepped up to a major obstacle that stood between us and what we considered to be God's promise for us and for our family. Matthew was six weeks old. I think I have a picture. Aw, very nostalgic. Matthew was six weeks old. He was born six weeks early, actually. actually. So uh, at the point in the story that we're at now, he was, should have been due that day. But he was six weeks old, and he had been born six weeks early due to uh, what they call cervical insufficiency. Basically, Nicole's body just wasn't capable of holding Matt any longer. So at Nikki's six-week follow-up appointment uh, with her OB, some routine testing revealed that she had some abnormal cervical cells that a biopsy would later diagnose as cervical adenocarcinoma in situ, basically cervical cancer. Now, there are two main types of cervical cancer. There's, cervical, or there's squamous cell carcinoma, which is typically the better of the two if you have to choose. Uh, it's, it tends to be more superficial. It's easier to treat. It's easier to remove. And then there's cervical adenocarcinoma in situ, which is what Nicole had. It tends to be a little bit deeper. It tends to be more aggressive, more quick to spread, a little more um, difficult to treat. So obviously, uh, she got this diagnosis of cancer, and the tumor had to be removed. The problem is that with Matthew being born six weeks early due to cervical insufficiency, after this tumor was removed, the, the odds of us having more children was dwindling, if not, like, non-existent. And Nicole and I both, both really felt that God had, had revealed to us that we would have two children. We both revealed that to be a promise uh, of God for us. So we suddenly had this obstacle kind of plopped down in front of us that we felt like was separating us from the promises of God. We stepped up to a Jordan of our own. It seemed to be at flood stage. So when Joshua stepped up to the Jordan River, the first thing that he had to do was he had to remember the promise. Joshua had been with this group of people through several victories. He may or may not have been there when they were liberated from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. I'm not sure exactly how old he was at the time. But I'm positive that he'd eaten some manna. They'd been wandering around the desert, so he'd seen that miracle. And we all know that because of kind of the history, Josh knew who he served, and he knew that God would deliver. But I have to believe that as they walked up to that river, that Josh was a little bit nervous. See, this wasn't the first rodeo that he'd ever been at, but this was definitely the first rodeo he'd ever been in. So I think when he speaks in chapter 3, verse 5, for the first time in that chapter, I think what he's doing is he's trying to verbalize his confidence in God. He's trying to kind of get it out there, thinking maybe if it's in the open, he'll be a little less nervous. He doesn't pray to God. He speaks to the people, and he says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord God will do amazing things among you. And what happens? Well, God speaks. It's as if God looks into him and sees his unease, that he sees his nervousness, and God just calls him out. He says, today is your day, Josh. Today you stop being the son of the servant of the leader, and you start being the leader. This was his first opportunity. Today all of Israel will see that I'm with you the exact same way that I was with Moses. 
So if you remember a couple weeks ago, I was teaching on Hebrews 12, and we spent a lot of time talking about perspective and how important perspective is to living our daily lives. Well, Joshua had phenomenal perspective. He knew where he came from, he knew where he was, and he knew where he was going. I, I have to believe he was scared. I have to believe that he was a little terrified. But he chose to remember, and not only remember, but vocalize the promises of God. Because you see, the first thing that we have to do when we encounter an obstacle is we have to remember the original promises of God. God has already shown you, if he hasn't shown, you should pray for it, but he's already shown you his promise. So the first thing you have to do when you step up to the river is remember his promise. You have to set your perspective right. When we realize that our God created everything that we see, including the river, then we start to be able to really focus on the idea that maybe the water isn't such a big deal in the first place. We look at the obstacle a little bit differently because the God we serve created it. So what power does it have? A good friend of mine is always reminding me to pray big prayers. He always says, Ryan, always says it like that because usually I need it. He says, there is no lack to God's surplus. We have to remember that God's promise is God's promise. And he's not going to let a little river get in the way. So when Nikki got diagnosed with cancer, when we stepped up to our Jordan, I did what Joshua did, I'm sure, probably more vocally than Joshua did, and that's that I worried a lot. I panicked a little bit. At the time, at the immediate diagnosis, I wasn't so focused on the God's promise of another child. I was more focused on the, how am I going to care for a six-week-old while my wife gets chemotherapy? How am I going to care for a six-week-old while my wife goes through radiation and can't be around him? And even worse, my mind was going to, what, what am I going to do if I become a single dad? I don't know babies at all. I mean, now I have two of them, so I kind of know. But like before this point, when Matt's six weeks old, Nicole did everything. I was like, man, I'm just support staff. Like, teach me. <laughs> so I was, I was a little panicked, and, and I vividly remember the changing point. I was sitting, it was an evening, and I was sitting in Matthew's room, and I was rocking him to sleep, talking on the phone to my mom. And my mom, it was like she was, she was trying to, to tease out of me what I knew and believed about God and, and his abilities. And I found myself saying, I know that God is bigger than this. I found myself saying, I know that God is capable of healing. And as I'm saying these things, um, I start to set my perspective. I start to remember the promise. And it's like God saw my internal unease and he spoke directly into it. At a follow-up appointment with Nicole's OB just a couple days later after this conversation with my mom, we were sitting in his office, and Nicole and I were both sitting there crying, honestly, because this, this physician was telling us that the odds that we would ever have another child were slim to none, that it was probably just not going to happen after the cervical insufficiency with Matthew, coupled with the surgery to remove the tumor, the odds that we would have more kids was not good. So then, huh, uh, God or the OB, I'm still not sure which, he looked right at Nicole and I and he said, you know, all this considered, I just have the feeling that I'm going to deliver another Stevens baby. Now, <laughs> being in healthcare, this is not something we say very frequently. Like, well, beside, despite all the facts, I just got a feeling that everything's going to be fine. So Nicole and I took that comment 
to be straight from God. Clearly, God was saying to us, Ryan, Nicole, you both worked in healthcare. You've prayed for healing. You've prayed for miracles. But today, today is your day. Today, you get to put your money where your mouth is. Today, you get to remember my promises. Today is your chance to live in the faith that you've proclaimed for so long. So, now what? What comes next? Well, just one step, really. What I love about the story with Joshua is that God could have just parted the river. He created it, right? He could have dried it up right there. There could be no Jordan today, right? Our God has that kind of authority. But he didn't part it. He didn't just part it for him and say, okay, hurry on. Okay, flows again. He made someone, or I mean one guy first, but a group of priests step in with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, at the time they were carrying it around, it's this big chest, and it contained the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. It had Aaron's rod, it had a jar of manna, and it had the first Torah scrolls that were written by Moses. The Ark represented God and really his past ability to deliver on his promises to the Israelites. So when God said, take the Ark and step into the water, what he was basically saying was, take my hand and we'll step into this thing together. I think about what it must have been like to have been the first guy. You're like carrying this big chest, and they're like, no, just go. Just step in. The, the, rager, the, the river is raging, but God isn't saying step into it alone. God's saying, let's go. He's saying, let's do this together. He wants you to trust him, but even more than that, he wants to see you trust him and move. In order to get across the obstacle that's laid out in front of you, You're going to have to move. You're going to have to act. You're going to have to be bold. And when it came to Nikki and I, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed for strength and power and wisdom. We did, you know, we, we prayed a lot. We asked God constantly. But at the end of the day, we really didn't have a choice but to step into reality. We knew and we believed the promises of God, but if we didn't move, we would never see them. We had to step by step walk out into the river or we would never have seen the water pile up. So what did we do? What did that look like? It looked like appointments. It looked like a lot of appointments. Appointment after appointment. It looked like a surgery. It looked like lots of research and, and self-study. We kept moving, but we trusted that God would lay dry ground in front of us at each step. It wasn't easy, but we just kept moving. And we watched a raging river in front of us be reduced to dry ground. Every single day, it was amazing. So now the Israelites are in the riverbed, and it's dry. I'm sure they were celebrating again, because time after time, God just like blows them away. And there had to be this palpable feeling of relief hanging in the air because they're standing in the middle of a river that literally moments prior was overrun with feet and feet of rushing water. But God isn't done with them yet, and this is actually my favorite part of this story. God tells them to go pick up some rocks. He says, have one member from each of the 12 tribes pick up a stone from right where the priest is standing and take it to the other side. He says, from right where the priest is standing. He's saying, hello, Israel. Stop focusing so hard on just getting to the other side that you forget where you are right now. 
which let me remind you, is standing in a dry riverbed with all the water piled up on one side of you. He's saying, I, God, am literally breaking all of the world's rules for you right now. Don't miss it. And how often do we need to hear this, right? Because we pray and we pray and we pray and we ask God to deliver us from things. But we don't stop in the middle of the process to actually look at the miracle of it all. Sure, God is going to get us to the other side, but a lot of times it's how he will get us to the other side that is really going to blow our minds. And we have to stop being so focused on just surviving that we neglect to enjoy God time after time, whooping the butt of all the obstacles that are trying to hold us from the promised land. We've got to be willing to celebrate the little victories because if we don't, then we step out of the river and we go, that was a big river. But we don't see all of the intricacy. We don't marvel at the detail. And the problem is that if this is our mindset, if we neglect to celebrate all the little victories along the way, all the stones in the river along the way, then later on when we look back, all we'll see is the obstacle, not the defeat. You see, looking back at the Israelites, God knew that when the water started flowing again, which, let me remind you, was exactly at the moment the last priest stepped out of that riverbed. He knew that exactly when the water started flowing again, if he didn't have them pick up the stones, they would turn around and they would say, whoa, that's a raging river. They would have lost all the perspective they gained along the way. He had them stack stones into a memorial. This way... They'd be so focused on the victory that they wouldn't even notice the water start to flow again behind them. They were too busy stacking stones. And then, and potentially most importantly, every time someone from a future generation looked back, they didn't see the river at all. They saw the victory. They saw the pile of stones. They saw that God had already conquered this obstacle. And just as chapter 4, verse 24 says, He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. He did this so that when we encounter obstacles, we'd be able to remember that our God is far more powerful than anything in our natural world. That the river that we're standing up against is is no match for the person that created it, for the God that created it. I had this vision in my mind of of us today with all the the great cloud of witnesses out of Hebrews right before us. I have this vision today of like every river we step up to is just lined with piles of stones. So in Nikki's journey through cancer and our struggle to have a second child, there were lots of stones in a really big river river that took us years to cross. But I want to celebrate them. That's my props in the Pampers box. Nicole's cancer was fully removed by a single surgery. The tumor, yeah, we can clap for that. The tumor size ended up being one millimeter by one millimeter. Victory. Her cancer was staged at grade 1A1, which is the lowest possible grade of cervical adenocarcinoma. 
What this means is that with every other grade of this type of cancer, a hysterectomy must happen now. You don't have the option. With grade 1A1, you have the option to preserve fertility. So we had the option of doing that and potentially having another baby. Victory. Along the process in the cancer workup, Nicole had had a CT scan that had showed, uh, basically they were looking for metastasis. It had showed a mass on her liver. If that mass had been cancer, if that mass was cancer, it would change the staging of her, of her cancer from stage 1A1 to stage 4, from the best to the worst. She would have metastatic disease at that point. And the prognosis would have been grim. It would have been chemo to see if we could buy a few more months, basically. So after a long wait, what seemed like a really long wait, she had a PET scan. The PET scan showed the mass to not be cancerous. Victory. <clears throat> she received no chemotherapy. She received no radiation. But she still can't carry a baby, right? Most likely. Her OB, but her OB, at some point in time, had had a single patient that had had a specialty type of surgery that would allow her to carry a child. Now, no, one, no surgeons in the state did the surgery, but we, there are five surgeons in the country that do it. So he gave us the name of a few. We called one who had just happened to be a guy from the University of Chicago. We were able to get in to see him almost immediately. See him as a conference call. We like to talk to him on the phone. But nonetheless, despite a busy schedule, that's the victory. But the real victory of this, of this physician in Chicago is that not only does he do like 180 of these surgeries a year, he invented the surgery. He pioneered the surgery type. We just happened to call this guy. Victory. He fit us into his busy surgery schedule just a matter of months later. We flew to Chicago. Victory. <clears throat> Whew, this is the one that gets me. <clears throat> My employer is Providence Alaska Medical Center. My employer changed their insurance plans just months before we left for Chicago. The entire health system, 28 hospitals, changed their insurance plans. With the change in insurance just months before we leave, this surgeon in Chicago somehow became a preferred provider, and we paid nothing for the surgery. Nicole got pregnant in December. And she carried the baby to almost full term, four weeks early Hannah was born. Wow. So on July 22nd at 6 p.m., Nicole and I stepped out of the riverbed. Ooh. with Hannah Grace Stevens. Hannah means favor in Hebrew.
We chose that name because God truly showed us favor and grace. We intentionally piled up some rocks. And because of that, when I look back on this process, I don't see cancer, and I don't see surgeries, and I don't see sleepless nights, and I don't see doctor visits. When I look back, I see Hannah Grace. She's my reminder that there's no lack to God's surplus. The God we serve is good, and his promises are good, and the process is sometimes painful, but it's good, and the promised land is so good. So a quick recap. Um, When we encounter an obstacle that stands seemingly between us and what we feel to be God's promises for us, We have to do three things. We have to remember the promise, first and foremost. Second, we have to move. We have to keep stepping into that promise, even when it means having the courage to step into deep water. And we've got to celebrate the victories. We've got to pile up some stones along the way. We have to declare the victories for our God so that the future generations will know. This is in my notes. I was thinking about this this morning. And we've been recently doing testimonies, right? Doing a few testimonies from people. Gloria gave one a few weeks ago. She said that her husband had passed away, and since he'd passed away, he had always helped her put the the fitted sheet on the bed. She said that that, earlier that week that, that she had put the fitted sheet on her bed. She'd said, all right, God, you said you'd take care of me. That's the case. This is what I need. Might seem small, but it's a little victory. Pick that stone up. Tammy has shared with us over and over. Is she here today? She's not here today. Tammy has shared over and over with us her battle with alcoholism. And she's got to be about 90 days, almost 90 days. I love hearing that. Pick up the stones. In order to do these three things, we have to remember, we have to know that God was with us before we got to the river. He was with us when we stood on the one bank. He was with us in the middle, and he's going to be with us when we're done with it. So that was the last statement from the sermon in my dream. Uh, But as I went back after the dream and studied this, God really kind of dropped this bomb on me. He showed me what I think is to be one of the biggest truths in this story. He showed me what I think he was really trying to show the Israelites at the time. Because, yes, he is with us wherever we are, be that on one side or in the middle or on the other. He's always with us, and that's profound. But I think that the Israelites, they already knew this. Given the track record of deliverance, I think they already knew that he was with them. I think what he was really trying to show them was that he was at the river's edge before they even got there was that he was in the river before it ever stopped flowing, and was that he was going to be at that river long after they were gone. You see, when they got to the river's edge, Joshua didn't cry out to God. He didn't cry out and pray some prayer to summon God. He didn't take God out of a little box that they were carrying with them. God just spoke. He was already there waiting for them. Like he was saying, oh, welcome, Joshua. Welcome to the Jordan. The stones that were in the river that God called them to pick up, they were big enough that they had to be carried on the shoulders of men. Now, I think that the size is significant. I think God wanted them to see that these stones representing the victories of the Lord, 
that these stones were present in the water before it parted. More specifically, they were heavy enough that even this river raging at flood stage couldn't move them. Not only were they present, but they were stationary in the middle of turmoil. They were sitting there just waiting to be claimed. God has been paving the way for us, planting victories in the river, and unless we step into it, we'll never see them. Changing the insurance plan for a health system of 28 hospitals and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of employees doesn't happen overnight. We didn't step up to the Jordan. We didn't, Nicole didn't get diagnosed with cancer and God didn't say, oh, I think I'll change the insurance plans now. He was there working long before we got there. And my mind immediately says to me, what if, what if it was just for us? What if? And last, just as the story points out, the pile of stones, the memorial that was built on the other side of the river, it was intended to speak to future generations. That this river did not have the authority to keep God's people from the promised land. But I believe that what it really was, was it, was, it wasn't God writing, God was here on the far bank of the Jordan. It was God writing, God is here on the far bank of the Jordan. He was here for future generations. Now, as I was studying for this, I actually found that in Scripture, the Jordan River is parted three different times. The first is in Joshua, where it's given two full chapters to describe the parting. The second and third times is in 2 Kings 2, where each time it's given one verse. The first time, Elijah and Elisha are headed back to Bethel, where Elijah will be taken up in the whirlwind. They come to the river, Elijah takes his cloak off, rolls it up, taps the river, they walk across, that's it. Coming back the other direction, Elisha has Elijah's cloak. He rolls it up, taps the river, walks across, that's it. If you trace back the steps in the cities that they were coming from, they would be, have been very near that pile of stones. Elijah and Elisha were future generations. So, so often we put God in this little box and we carry him around like he's only where we are. And the problem is that if that were true, who would be preparing the way for us the whole time? God's not a raincoat to be put on and worn through a storm. God's there before the storm gets there. God's in the storm and God will be there long after the storm has passed. We have got to stop assuming that there is some sort of bottom to the surplus of God. Greg, if you want to come up, Derek. So I guess the question is for us, where are you standing right now? What's your river? What has kept or is keeping or was keeping you from the promised land, from God's promises? Maybe it's cancer too. Maybe it's some other health issue. Maybe it's trouble in your marriage. Maybe it's an ill-behaved child. Maybe it's a job that just is seemingly sucking the life out of you. Maybe it's your finances. What bank are you standing on, scratching your head, saying, God, what the heck? Why would you bring me this way? So let's work it backwards. First, maybe you just stepped out of a Jordan yourself. Maybe you just crossed on dry ground. Maybe it's time for you to reflect on why that ground was dry in the first time, in the first place. Maybe it's time for you to start stacking some stones to reflect on all the little victories along the way. Because if you don't take the time to assemble the memorial, if you don't take the time to stack the stones and celebrate the victories, what will you see when you look back? 
Will you see a river of unmet expectations or addiction or sickness, anger or fear, resentment? Or will you see the power and the strength of your God and his total defeat of the circumstances you were standing in? Maybe you're currently standing on dry ground in the middle of a river. Do you need to stop staring at the wall of water beside you trembling? Maybe you need to stop focusing on the far bank so hard, and maybe you just need to put one foot in front of another and start picking up some stones. God was with you before. He got you this far. And he'll get you through this too. You just have to keep walking. You just have to be willing to claim the victories that God put in front of you long before the water ever parted. And lastly, maybe you just stepped up to, or even worse, maybe you are unknowingly about to step up to a Jordan of your own. Whatever it is, let me assure you that God has been with with you until now. You have got to remember his promises. Like I said earlier, you're not sure? Ask him. He's delivered you from some stuff before. He has a track record. He got you to here and he will get you through this. But you have to be willing to move. You have to have the courage to step into the river, to watch it dry up, and then to pick up the stones that are waiting for you. Remember that there is no lack to God's surplus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, you, uh, you are so good. your ability and willingness to deliver us from things that seem impossible is amazing. And God, thank you for being with us always, for preparing the way for us, for placing those stones in the river, just waiting for us to pick them up. God, help us to not be confined to space as dictated by what we see and feel around us, God, but to know that you are God of it all, that you created it all, and that nothing in this world is capable of separating us from your promises, that nothing is capable of separating us from the goodness that you provide us. Thank you for your consistency, God, and may it be your will that is done here on earth, not our own. God, just lead us, guide us, help us to support each other, help us to stand united in Christ together as a family, walk across these rivers together, God. And Father, I just pray for this family, I pray for this church that you would protect them as they go out, that you would keep them safe, that you would continue to deliver them from their Jordans, God, and that you would bring everyone back here safely next week. Just thank you again for your faithfulness, for your steadfastness. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.